It is tempting to think that more leadership or some kind of improved leadership will help us and our organizations work better. But what if leadership was part of the problem instead of the solution? What if our understanding of it only maintained principles of the past, which no longer serve us well? That's what I explore in my book, Dare to Unlead, and today in this podcast. Join me and my guest, a person quoted in the book or in tune with its values, to learn from them what it takes to unlead and succeed together. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Dare to Unlead podcast, where we explore some of the themes addressed in Dare to Unlead the book. We started with the crisis of work and leadership in organizations that are often misunderstood for machines. But you can't fix a team or a business as you would repair a broken engine because they really are living organizations and that changes everything. What we need today is a reinvention of leadership which can take place around three universal values. We covered the first one, liberty, in episodes three to five of this podcast. Susan Skrupski kicked off equality in episode six, more precisely, equality in diversity. And what makes it possible? In my opinion, networks. Networks as technology and networks as operating principles. That's the topic of chapter seven. And that's what we're going to talk about today with my two guests. Two? Yes, for a change. Plus, not only is this multi-person conversation a good illustration of the topic, but my guests have a particular deep understanding of networks and how they change work and leadership. John Husband and Harold Joshi are familiar names to those interested in new forms of work. Both live in Canada, Montreal for John and Sackville, New Brunswick for Harold, almost all the way to the east. John is a thinker, a speaker, an advisor, involved in the deep sociological and psychological changes introduced by the network era. Prior to working on his own, John has been involved in some of the foundational elements of the management systems we know today, such as talent strategies, org design, job evaluations, compensations, and so on. He knows this stuff from within. Harold Joshi is also an advisor, a writer, speaker, and I love that from his LinkedIn profile, a keen subversive of the last century's management and training models. Harold spent 17 years in the Canadian Armed Forces where he developed a passion for training, learning, well, everything knowledge, and most likely one of the fields that is most transformed by networks. Harold is an active blogger and a partner in the Internet Time Alliance, an international think tank focused on organizational learning and performance. I met Harold and John through, guess what, social networks. And I had the pleasure of meeting John in person several times. I have a deep respect for their respective work. They provide, in my opinion, essential guideposts for navigating the present and future of work. I also admire their work ethic, the way they lead their lives in alignment with their values of open collaboration and knowledge sharing. Hasn't this become subversive indeed? John, Harold, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. I'm excited to hear from you today. 
So let me start with the question I ask each guest on this podcast. I'll start with you, John. John, what is your art, the professional practice that you would describe as unique to you or that you perform in a unique way? What is your art and what led you to this? That's an interesting question, particularly as I approach, uh, let's call it early old age, uh, and look back on the twisting and winding path uh, that got me here. And as I look back, I find myself uh, increasingly, probably because I'm independent, very much like the curious 18-year-old who went to university and began uh, experiencing life outside of home. I think my art uh, has become an, an enduring curiosity about, about human beings, why they do what they do, uh, how they work, how they live, coupled with uh, a very good and deep knowledge of the history of organizations, uh, why people organize to do what they do, what motivates them, uh, what keeps them going, intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. And to encompass that and what led me eventually to uh, study networks was the combination of that curiosity, that knowledge, and I, what I would call a Jesuit-like training in the applied methodologies that organizations are using. In other words, all of the basic tools of 20th century industrial era management science. The combination of those three led to significant disenchantment and disillusionment. But what I, that's what I do. I watch uh, and I recognize patterns, I think, earlier than many people and put that against the background of where we've been for the last hundred years. Hmm. That's awesome. What about you, Harold? What's your art? <laughs> My art? Um, well, I'll start a little bit with the, um, uh, you, you talked about me being a keen subversive of the last century's education and management models. Um, that actually came from a reader that uh, I didn't make that up. <laughs> So somebody actually said, well, this is what you do, Harold. So um, that's, that's part of it. Um, I came across a term this year, which I think describes me. So my wife has always said that I'm 10 to 20 years ahead of everybody else, which is why I've had s certain challenges in, uh, in running my own business, because people go like, what the heck is this guy talking about? And the term that I came across um, is called sentinel intelligence. And that there are some people who sort of, who see the, <laughs> they see the signs that a lot of other people don't see. And in some ways it's a curse um, because it's kind of like, well, how come you don't see this? Isn't this obvious? And, um, and, and I think that that is one thing that I, that I also bring to my clients. And I've been lucky to have a few clients who've actually appreciated that, but trying to find them is difficult. So I, I think that's a problem being either a Cassandra or being a little too far out there. And, uh, but, but I think that that is my For unique sure. talent. I've been, if it's any consolation, I've been called Cassandra a number of times in my uh, working life as well. <laughs> and how did the two Cassandras of you got connected? I actually dug through my blog posts to figure that one out, John. And? <laughs> well, it'd be the early 2000s, uh, 2001 or 2002, I would think, uh, when uh, many of us had our hair on fire about the potential of uh, the, these liberating tools in this liberating environment. I know that's a question that's, that's coming up. Uh, one of the reasons why there was so much excitement is because there had been 50 years of uh, growing 
uh, anxiety about all of the different kinds of constraints placed on workers under um, evolved management science. Mm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, when I was looking through it, it was, I mean, we, we got connected through other bloggers and people that you mentioned, Johnny Moore, Rob Patterson, and a few others who were talking about um, uh, the, the, how the, the web particularly is changing um, relationships and particularly hierarchical relationships. And uh, that's how we started uh, connecting uh, through them because by two 2001, I wasn't blogging, but I was reading a lot of blogs and I was one of the few people commenting on the blogs, which was kind of, people weren't doing much commenting early on. And that's how I got to know a number of people because kind of like, hey, you, write, you comment, you do that, connected. And so, yeah, so it's been... It's been a solid 20 yeah. plus years that John and I have known each other. Uh, yeah, and that leads to my second, my next question. Precisely, the internet is uh, considered to be officially born in 1983 somehow, and soon after came the first online virtual communities. So, do you remember when and how you got involved in digital networks, John? Yes, I do very clearly. Uh, in Keeping with what I said before about my curiosity, I had been reading a lot in the mid-80s about the coming information age uh, and the knowledge age and so on. And so I was aware that there was this thing called the Internet and that I, I in fact, I, I think I still have it around somewhere, a Fortune magazine with a cover about this, this thing called the Internet coming. And at the date of publication of that uh, particular issue of Fortune magazine, there were only 74 websites on the planet. So, and, you know, they were wondering if this thing was going to stick around. And then came uh, sort of the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust right at the end. Of, and that was around the time I came up with the notion of hierarchy. But also I was, in, I was involved in a number of the early networks like Tribe, Friendster, Orkut. I was also paying attention to what is a topic of considerable discussion these days, natural language processing back then, was I was involved in designing and building a piece of software for blogging called Cumana. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was pretty actively involved in the, you know, the first five years of the 2000s. That's awesome. And how about you, Harold? Yeah, so I, I come from a very non-techie background. As a matter of fact, you could almost call me a, a, a modern Luddite in my early years. I had no interest in this. I, I took a computer programming course in 1979. And I failed, and the professor called me in, and he said, uh, "So he said, what are you majoring in?" I said, "History." <laughs> he said, "Are you planning on taking another um, uh, computing course?" I said, "No." He said, "All right, you pass. Get out of here." <laughs> and that and that was and that was a course in Fortran, Fortran using punch cards. So that's so that's like seventy nine, and then leap forward to uh, nineteen ninety three, and I just transferred and became a, a training specialist in the military. And I got posted to um, an, an Air Force unit, and we had, we had just purchased 100 new helicopters. And my job was to design all the training, and we were getting in. And, and I had to understand computer-based training because we had this new this new thing coming and flight simulation. And so it was like you got to learn about technology, whether you like it or not, buddy. <laughs> And I, and I did, and I was stationed in Montreal at the time, and uh, there was this place called uh, a window on technology in, uh, in downtown Montreal. And uh, I, I went there because I was just getting started on a master's in education, and, and I went there with a friend of mine, and we saw this thing. It, uh, 
on a computer and it showed a website and a light went on because the website was in Germany and it was kind of like, I can post something in Canada, somebody in Germany can read it, vice versa. And the light went on saying, this is going to change everything because anybody can post anything and they can share anything ev everywhere. And I became sort of a web network evangelist that minute. And uh, so that was in, that that would have been in early 1994. And you were right. This, this changed everything, including the power structures. So now come the, the big question, John, about Wairaki. What is Wairaki? Well, um, it, it's, uh, I think, on purpose. First of all, it's just a made-up word, uh, just to be clear about that that uh, myself and then uh, a few other people have imparted some meaning to through its through the definition of it uh, and on purpose have always left it just as a definition of a an emergent principle because i'm not sure that there's that it's makeable into any particular method although a little bit later i'll probably talk about how i think i see it all around us Uh, but to continue on with sort of the, the story I started, I had ended up by the year 2000, having spent uh, about 15 years as a management consultant working with uh, mainly the tools or the methods for developing the different levels in organization charts and the compensation Uh, strategies and the performance management strategies that went along with that. And the company I worked for was the dominant uh, provider or uh, user, uh, well, the provider of these methods to large organizations all around the world. And it, it's a method that was uh, derived in the 50s. It's very, very clever, but it's very um, industrial engineering based very logical, very straightforward, based on inputs, throughputs, and outputs, and really codified, I think, generically in terms of the definitions that are used in the method, virtually all of uh, Frederick Taylor's uh, principles of scientific management. And by that, by the, by the time, two th well, mid-90s rolled around, I had been reading a lot about Thing, emerging knowledge management, living organizations, organizational learning, Peter Senge's work, Ari Degus's work, all sorts of other people. Again, remembering that I'm curious about people and why they do what they do. And, and I ended up quitting the management consulting company, which was very, very traumatic for me, uh, just as I had turned 40. And it really kind of blew up my life. But I couldn't see myself continuing in that firm with those old methods when I thought something so exciting as this information age and the era of networks was coming at us. Uh, so I ended up quitting. And then a few years later, I was in the middle of the dot-com boom and I was actually reading an article or had just read an article by Peter Drucker titled Beyond the Information Age. Uh, and the last seven paragraphs, which is a section is titled Bribing the Knowledge Workers. Uh, and in it, he basically said, Eventually, in the economy that we're moving into, those who are knowledge workers who produce the value out of knowledge and information are going to be the ones who own the means of production. And once they realize that, and a significant number of them realize that, then power shifts begin to happen with respect to traditional hierarchies. And I went, aha, and the light went on. 
And actually, it was the next day when I was in the shower, uh, I was thinking about this new magazine that had come out, Wired magazine, and I was thinking about what is the archie or the architecture, the rules and the principles for living and working in this wired information age that's coming at us. And I just wire. It sounded like higher hierarchy, wirearchy, bang, and I knew what I meant. And I went out and wrote it down. Again, I had the benefit of probably 25 years of studying organizations and, you know, things like stocks and flows of knowledge and, you know, where knowledge comes from, how how information is used and so on. Um, and hierarchy, the, the definition came to me that day. It's a dynamic flow of power and authority based on knowledge, trust, credibility, and a focus on generating value. Now, one of the things that's I've been asked a hundred times or a thousand times is, you know, isn't that kind of too generic? But if you think of what's going on with the several billion of us connected now, whether it's dystopian or whether it's utopian, what's involved are we are constantly exchanging quote unquote knowledge and we are building or losing trust and credibility as the case may be. In many instances today, what circulates online creates opinion, whether it's correct and based on fact or not. And opinion is what creates energy for action. So we have this this kind of ongoing tug of war that I don't expect is going to end anytime soon. Uh, it's just going to continue to evolve as we learn how to work with it, uh, deal with it, master it, learn from the mis- very large mistakes that will be made and so on. So... You know, it, it's it's really um, a principle based on the exchanges of information and what will be built out of that, whether it's for the better or for the worse, and, and there will be examples of both. John, do you mean that with uh, hierarchy, with the... Uh... Um, the the advent of this new era. Do you mean? Does it mean that job titles, reporting structures, hierarchical power, etc., all things expressed in org charts, is now meaningless, or not? I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't think they're meaningless. I think that um, what existed before, or what still exists in many, if not most cases, which is a classic organization chart with boxes that have job titles in them and then underneath uh, somewhere in the files of each worker and each uh, human resources department there are additional documents that will go along with you know your your KPIs or your OKRs uh, your performance objectives your salary range uh, the different competencies you're expected to have and the competency models that attach to those and so on I don't think Those are meaningless. They have been a set of tools to implement, uh, you know, a general thesis, if you will, or ethos of management science. But I think that because of the much more rapidly moving workplace now, the these things will change in terms of their intent uh, per, and perhaps their use. I wrote an essay, I think a long time ago, called, called Our Agreements Are Our Structures, uh, because what we've agreed to is, you know, the job descriptions and performance kits that are around us in the org charts. Uh, so I think all of those things are going to change. They've been used typically as almost like a like a subway map or a map of a city mm-hmm. where you're looking at a human organization, and this is the way things 
officially are supposed to work, what we all know is that there's an awful lot that goes on in the white space of organization charts uh, or in workarounds or in people that are dissatisfied with their titles, uh, often because a better, a different title would give them more money and put them in a different salary range, which is what a lot of consulting is about, actually. Um, but I think they're, they're around to stay. They're going to become more flexible. Uh, I think jobs are going to come to be seen or are already seen as roles instead of jobs so that they can be redefined more easily. They're not so these things are not going to go away. They're going to get retooled. Uh, they will also be retooled because many organizations now use software platforms to manage much of the information about the employment relationship. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Harold, what does Wairaki uh, mean today? Why why does it matter? Well, I, I mean, I think I've I've written a number of posts on Wirearchy and pretty well incorporated it in, in, into my own work. But but when you think about it, is that more and more the work that we're dealing with is is or, or the situations are complex or even chaotic, right? And what we do know is that what Wirearchy puts forth, this idea of a, a two way flow of trust and information and knowledge, is that. It's only when information flows fast that we can make better decisions, right? So, I mean, so, and I say that knowledge flows at the speed of trust. So, which basically is incorporates the, the hierarchy um, uh, organizing principle. And too many of our organizations are structured around being able to deal with um, what Dave Snowden calls the ordered domains when it's clear or it's complicated, right? And so, and, and that's why we have these job roles. But to deal with complexity or even chaos is what we need are much looser, what I call temporary negotiated hierarchies. So somebody's got to be in charge. Okay. Today, you're in charge. Tomorrow, John, you're in charge, right? Because the situation is different. And so you need to be able to have that uh, ability to reorganize very, uh, very quickly. But you also need to have strong networks to know where you can get the right information at the right, at the right time from. So, and then when you go back to hierarchy, you say, okay, yeah, this is, this is an organizing principle, right? And from that, we can then build different organizational models. Harold has a, a built some years ago, a, a very interesting diagram where he took the essentially what's recognized as the, the Kinevin framework symbol of uh, four plus one uh, areas, uh, the center being disorder, um, the center area. But uh, laying on top of that, I think it's Verna Alley's work on uh, value networks, where you get this notion of different looseness and tightness of hierarchies depending upon the situations that you find yourself in. And I think one of the things that's interesting, given that we're talking about hierarchy now, is that two, two things that have really stayed with me. One is the rise of awareness of complexity and complex adaptive systems. And, and the fundamental issue of complexity is that different parts are in, are in interaction, are in motion, whereas the uh, underlying assumption in the previous era of industrial things meant that there was a, often a sixth, fixed sequence of tasks uh, that produce an outcome. So it's a very different notion as opposed to all sorts of different parts of, let's say, a knowledge network interacting with each other. And out of that emerges, you know, appropriate responses that are scaffolded into eventually an appropriate response or not. So th this notion of uh, the complexity becoming 
more tangible, more in our awareness, I think is compounded by the fact that uh, we haven't really gotten into the, the topics like PKM or working out loud, where so much more of what we do has a number of defining characteristics that weren't there before. They're visible all the time on a screen. They're searchable. Mm. They're linkable. Uh, you can do much, much more with this information once you know where you're navigating. And what's really important to keep in mind is that with all this interaction, it brings con placing things into context to the fore always. Um, you know, if I could say anything, adopting that, that real estate maxim of location, location, location for networks, it's context, 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 always context. And in fact, if you look at the notions of complex adaptive systems and Dave Snowden's and others work, when you move into less certain, more complex conditions, you are seeking to find what are the constraints and what are the boundaries that operate such as to allow you to both, first of all, understand and get a handle on what's going on and then respond in, in appropriate or intelligent ways. Hmm. And it is said that the advent of networks signals the end or the beginning of the end of autocratic uh, top-down management. Harold, is the uh, democratization of work something we should aim for? If yes, why and where do we start? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I talked about um, knowledge flows at the speed of trust mm -hmm. and that you have to. And if you think about uh, the uh, requirement to form and reform who we work with and how and how we work together is that, um, you know, democracy where everyone is an equal or has some 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 equality really gives you much more agility. And if you think about a, a a structured hierarchical organization, it is only as smart as the individual at the top. So that that really that is it. That's that's a huge limitation, right? And um, uh, one thing that I put forward in terms of uh, in terms of leadership is that leadership is helping make your network smarter. It's helping them make better decisions. And if you think about that from the perspective of our elites in many of our of our democracies, is that they haven't helped make their network smarter. They haven't helped to make their community smarter. And so, you know, uh, if you dumb down the networks around you, they're going to be making decisions that maybe aren't in your best interest. So again, so that the democratization of knowledge, I think, becomes essential to be able to address the complex um, things that that we that, that we really need to. And we don't have those. We don't have enough of those deep conversations about about these fuzzy, unfixable, unmanageable types of things that we st that we have to deal with in, uh, anyway. And uh, some kind of democratically organized uh, structure, I think, is the only one that's going to allow that information to flow uh, as fast as it can. And we saw that outside of government in the initial days of the pandemic when they when we didn't have a vaccine and how scientists in china and uh, uh in europe and the us and africa were they were just they, they were throwing stuff out there online for people to take a look at and that's how they were able to identify sequence the gene and then they were able to uh, start developing the mrna uh, vaccines and that was through you know open democratic democratic <laughs> uh, no one was um, uh, really in charge of it and and they were and they were just throwing it out and uh, now we seem to have reverted back at the other end of the pendulum right now unfortunately if I, if I could add if I could add to what Harold said around the question of 
the end of top-down uh, autocratic management? I would say no, that uh, we're not going to see the end of top-down management. However, I would say that conditions of, let's call it uh, hierarchy, uh, sharpen the game for leaders in terms of you know uh, being seen and being heard to walk their talk, which has always been right at the top of the flip chart lists of what's not going well around here. But I do think what is, uh, and it'll take longer, it will, it'll, it's partly generational. I think we will see the end of, generally, the end of autocratic part of top-down management. So you'll have much more of mm -hmm. uh, feedback and listening loops going on. However, I do think that there will be, you know, places where autocratic management um, take, take root. Hmm. And John, uh, how do we resolve conflict in a network when precisely there's no boss uh, uh, deciding for the rest of us? Well, I think that that's a very, very interesting question. Uh, I think that one of the things that these network conditions puts into play in a very important way is the notion of decision making. And it's coupled to uh, Harold's hmm. notion of knowledge flows at the speed of trust. There's an awful lot of knowledge that is stopped being put into action because of the protocols and the policies and the guidelines in place at a given organization and the penalties for going outside those guardrails. I don't know what the answer is to collaborative decision-making, particularly on large scales. There are a number of uh, schools of uh, practice, I would say, involved in what's called large-scale change. And I think your friend Myron Rogers has done a fair bit of that kind of work where there are ways to get large groups of people together, put issues on table, work them out uh, with the help usually of facilitators, and then gather uh, what has been worked out by a diverse and inclusive set of processes to say, here's what we're looking at, what should we do about it? I would also think that a lot of Dave Snowden's uh, recent work in the last two or three years has been about different kinds of uh, both uh, what he calls assemblages uh, and processes to put those into place that that seek out diversity of, of opinion and inclusion of different viewpoints in order to capture as much, capture might not be the right word, uh, process as much of the complexity as possible in a given context. But in terms of mm. is there a method for making decisions amongst large groups of people with diverse uh, sources of information, knowledge, and opinion? I don't think so. There will be group processes uh, and a number of the people that we all know already work with those. And to make decisions, we need to form opinions. That's maybe the point where we get to PKM. Harold, what does PKM stand for? And why does it matter? And how do we develop the skills we need in the world uh, of today? Yeah, first, uh, speaking of opinions, one of my mantras is strong opinions, loosely held. And I think that which is part of the whole idea, notion of perpetual beta, is that all of our models that we use to inform us are in beta. We need to use them to make decisions, and uh, but we also have to be able to discard them if they're no they're no longer useful. So, so PKM, uh, which was called or is called personal knowledge management. And I've developed a framework, and I use the term personal knowledge mastery, and I'll explain why. For me, it came out of, um, I guess you'd call it creative desperation. So 2003, I lost my job. 
And uh, here I am, you said I'm in Sackville, New Brunswick, at the time population 5,000, only 1,000 kilometers to John's house. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a little ways away from, uh, from Montreal and 1,000 kilometers to, down to Boston. And um, I, I lost my job. There was no r- real work in the area. And I decided, well, you know, consulting is something that I've done and something I understand. I understand these learning technologies and stuff like that. But I couldn't afford to um, fly to conferences and you know pay the fees and stuff like that. And I had to, f- and to figure out, okay, well, how the heck am I going to stay current? And so I started researching on the web and I started blogging and things like that. And I came across this thing called personal knowledge management, which is like, how do I organize my information, make sense of it and sort of get going? And I, and I just started writing about it and going back and forth and stuff like that and trying different ideas. And, and more. it was more me working out loud, learning out loud without even using that using that term. And some other people connected with me on the blog uh, on that. And, you know, like the conversations about wirearchy with John. And over time, uh, it, the first thing that really hit me was um, about, because I started in about 2004 writing about it. And I think it was 2007 or 2008 that uh, Domino's uh, Pizza contacted me, their head of uh, leadership. And I said, been reading about this PKM thing. Could you like run a workshop and could we incorporate it into our leadership program? I go sure, because <laughs> it wasn't even a thing, right? And uh, and then it developed over time. I call it personal knowledge mastery because I wanted to get away from the KM world, which is KM was a lot of top down stuff, right? It was knowledge management. We're going to build these repositories. We're, we've got these systems like Cognizant or whatever. And for me, it's about every person trying to. How am I going to seek out the information and the connections, the human connections that I need? So it's the seek. What do I do to make sense? Because if you're not doing anything with this stuff, you're collecting a whole bunch of stuff and it's just stuff, right? So what am I doing to actually make sense of this? And then what am I doing to share that at the appropriate times? And that's the whole notion of, of leadership and networks is helping make the network smarter. So trying, so I'm trying to share at the appropriate time with the appropriate people and maybe help them get their work done. And so PKM has kind of progressed along that. And I guess in some ways I'm known as the PKM guy now. Uh, not that that was ever uh, ever the intent, but we've run the programs. We just finished developing a program called Working Smarter at City. We finished that in uh, 2020. And uh, it's based on the PKM uh, framework, curiosity, seeking, sensing, and and sharing. City is running 5,000 people a quarter through the program. Um, and because they, they, they realized that they, that collaboration wasn't happening between departments or between, as John had mentioned, the greater network suppliers, consultants, and things like that. And so that program has been has been very uh, successful in, in terms of how it's received. And it's an informal and social learning program. It's not a check the box uh, and answer the questions and, and do things like that. So the proof is in the pudding that this, the framework, the structure makes sense to a lot, a, a lot of different people. And for me, it, it really has become my own sense-making framework and the core for me is my blogging right and which i celebrated my 19th blog anniversary uh two days ago amazing (laughs) and and you run pkm courses and i enrolled in one of them and can only recommend people to check that out because they are really uh, extremely useful if i I can add uh, if i can add to both your uh, testimony and harold's i i consider uh, pkm uh, an absolutely fundamental 
an essential skill for operating in uh, not only a hierarchy, but let's call it tomorrow's network conditions for everybody. I think it's the kind of thing that should, everybody should get at least an introductory course to it before they get out of high school, you know, because we're spending all day on our screens every day, surrounded by and penetrated by flows of information. And it's only going to get more intense, more frequent. Uh, and so having this skill is a survival skill. And it's also a skill for, I think, participating responsibly in uh, networks of knowledge where people are trying to get things done. So, uh, yeah, and PK, PK mastery is quite different than a lot of other PKM products and processes that are sold out there because there isn't a recipe and there's no technology. And what it's about is 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 discovering through trial and error what works for you, and then developing your own. Uh, a way of practicing it. So everyone practices PK mastery differently. And and that is a real challenge in terms of um, selling it. And also uh, the initial learning curve for a lot of people is kind of like, well, just give me the answers, give me the recipe. And that's, there isn't one. <laughs> it's modern literacy, I would say. Huh? And um... Yeah, so we're, we're coming to the, the, the end, unfortunately, of this conversation, which I could keep going for another couple of hours. Let me ask just a few last questions. John, there's a growing disenchantment towards the effect of social networks on society. It was hoped that they would support diversity in our global village. Now it seems uh, quite different 30 years later. Have networks failed us? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that... Uh... What we're seeing is, is this might sound presumptuous, but uh, has been largely predictable. And I remember, uh, you know, bloggers talking about the uh, ravaging effects that commercializing everything uh, would have. So when social networks first came onto the scene, uh, we felt like they were liberating because, as Harold said, you can actually share something with somebody in Germany or Poland or Japan and you can, eventually there was Skype, you could talk to them, you could do all this connecting. And there were uh, a bunch of visionaries, uh, including John Perry Barlow, that wrote about uh, the freedom of information and so on and so forth. But we've seen the pernicious effects of the only way that you could get money to scale to be uh, as large as Facebook or Twitter was to go through an IPO. And then, you know, who controls the IPOs, which are the venture capitalists and the big uh, uh, brokerage houses, and so on. However, I think networks are here to stay. I don't think they're going away. I think they have reflected to us who we are. It's not the tools that are causing all the uproar. It's uh, uh, anonymous imbeciles, <laughs> including us. Um, you know, the notions of an anonymity make it a lot easier to say stupid things uh, when you might not if you're at a backyard barbecue. So I don't think they fail us. I think they're still, you know, toddlers or uh, uh, young teens in terms of uh, maturing, in terms of how we use them. And Harold, how can organizations make the best of networks? I think organizations can make the best use of networks when leadership starts reaching out and networking starts practicing. Um, it's uh, what I've noticed that particularly in the learning sphere or in knowledge management, is that if you want to have more collaboration, you want to have more cooperation, I differentiate the two, is that uh, 
the leadership has to sort of practice it and it's because it's leadership by example and we know that um that humans learn much more through modeling than they do through what what's called shaping so in other words uh, you have a formal training program uh, it has nowhere near the impact of the modeled behavior within the organization so i think organize is is when the leadership starts connecting outside when they start um, sharing knowledge, the two-way flow of trust and information starts happening because in all of the analyses that I have done in organizations over the years is that the problem is management. Is that if you fix management, you fix the organization. I, I, I agree completely with, with Harold. Uh, Tom Peters wrote many years ago about manage, managing by walking around so I remember Harold and I were talking about managing by blogging around, but uh, participating in the social networks in a in a real and authentic way helps build trust and credibility, period. Now, I, I want to close this uh, conversation by paying tribute to someone you have both known and met, Esko Kilpi, who was an amazing thinker of work and digital leadership and who's quoted many times in Dare to Unlead. To Kilpi, work and leadership was, I mean, is an interaction. And I mentioned that the raw material of collaborative work is the exchange of information, not the information itself. So warm thoughts to, to his family and to everyone who has been uh, inspired by this amazing thinker. Now, my last question to both of you will be, what would you say to someone who hasn't read Dare to Unlead yet, apart from read it. <laughs> John? Dare to Unlead is a highly personal story of Celine's experience with uh, the world of work uh, and herself in that world of work and her signature path through that world of work has led her to seek out and uh, earn a deep understanding of the dynamics of work both in the old world and in the new and emerging world. So she has done a, a great job of putting that together in a uh, very accessible style that also goes deep into these issues. So yes, read it. <laughs> Harold? Yes, uh, well, I, I agree with John. I feel the same The same thing is that I think the, the real sweet spot of Dare to Unlead is that it's a personal story. It's not an academic going out there researching, you know, these are all the traits of leadership and unleadership and things like that and putting it together. But it's your story, right? And then in addition to that, as you said, that uh, ESCO is quoted several times within that, and so are a whole bunch of other people. And I think that weaving together all of those stories and making it personal. I mean, this this crap that, you know, this is business, it's not personal, that we, we have heard over the years, which is total crap, because it is personal, because we are people, because we either need to work in the organization, we are in the organization, and people in leadership positions, I don't call them leaders, people in leadership positions, right, uh, have a responsibility responsibility and they have a huge impact on other people and that's why I really like about uh, about, about your book uh, Celine is that yeah it's personal and it's great the second time I got fired uh, the meeting started with it's not personal it's just business <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> did it, did, and, and I'm sure it felt pretty darn personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, John, Harold. This book is a network and you are both illuminating this network with your perspectives, your brio and insights and foresight, I would say. So thank you so much for having been in this conversation. We will post all resources under the podcast and people will be able to find you and explore your work more if they are interested. And I'm sure they will be. Thank you so much. Thank you, Celine. Great insights. Thank you all for listening. You'll find more info in Dare to Unlead, the book, and all links in the podcast episode description. And now, what else? Action! To explore further and apply these ideas to your own context, reach out to me at weneedsocial.com. Let's unlead together. <laughs>